0: Blog talk Radio.
1: Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Suttles, and I want to thank you for being with us today as we continue in our mission to uh, provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in these United States. And today I am particularly jazzed and probably unduly wired. Uh, because this is actually our third anniversary show, and it's hard to believe that, uh, that I've been doing this, uh, this craziness for, for three years. Uh, I, I figured out last night it's, it's roughly about 200 shows, uh, interviews with people all across the spectrum of uh, community broadband and, indeed, uh, public, private, and uh, nonprofit organizations. It, it has been an interesting... Uh, journey. It started really as a random idea because I kept getting spam messages about starting your own radio show. And I thought that was kind of silly. But then I thought more about it and decided that, you know, it hadn't been done. And so let's just give it a roll and and see what happens. So I went out and uh, convinced Hiawatha Broadband Communications, which was our first sponsor to actually uh, be, our, be an early supporter, and uh, then lined up about a month's worth of guests and launched this thing on the 27th uh, of the month, so it was two, three years ago yesterday, and I'm broadcasting live from Chattanooga in the EPB building, and for those of you who are living under a rock or something, EPB is the public utility that owns and operates Chattanooga's gigabit network, and um, so I'm actually here in the building. Uh, yes, I am using a gig, so this is the, uh, the fastest show. I should probably talk faster to take advantage of the, the speed or something. But, but, but basically, you know, we're here uh, because they were, my, they were the first guests that I uh, interviewed. Uh, and Jim Ingram, who's the uh, VP of Strategic Research, uh, will be here uh, to say hello uh, in, in a little bit. But uh, he was the first guest, and Chattanooga was big and happening, and and it's still happening. And so I decided, well, for the third anniversary, I would come back. It's also the day before uh, the demo day for the Gig Tank program, which is, uh, I once referred to it as summer camp for geeks, where basically they bring these engineering teams here to Chattanooga and let them play to their innovative heart's content on the city's gig network to create uh, applications that, in the couple of years, three years that it has been, two years that's been going on, have have been truly phenomenal. And some of them have left and have gone on to fame and fortune, or at least investment fortune, and uh, are, are doing very well. Uh, I think everyone who has gone through the program has been very much enriched by it, and the program itself has kind of been one of the centerpieces of the, uh, the city's effort to define itself and reshape itself as a gigabit city. And so, you know, it just seemed like all the stars came together, the, the anniversary and Demo Day, and, and I was going to be here, so I figured, well, let's just do the show from here. And uh, so I am very uh, pleased at this opportunity, and I'm pleased for all of our listeners Uh, who have supported us through the years as well. Uh, Chattanooga is also, I think, at a very interesting point uh, in the greater scheme of broadband happening because they have filed a petition with the FCC to uh, basically try to figure out a way to, to strike down all of these intrusive state laws that basically dictate to communities that they cannot have a public option as one of their options for broadband, particularly in areas where they can't get better service. And we should look at today's show as not just a uh, sort of trip down memory lane for, you know, for Gigabit Nation, or just a trip down memory lane for uh, Chattanooga, because we're going to talk about, you know, some of the milestones that the city has uh, achieved with the network. But it is also... I think a very good look into the future of what can happen if those barriers are removed because there are communities out there around Chattanooga that want to be on the same footing as Chattanooga. So you can look at where Chattanooga has come from and to and where they're going and and extrapolate out and say you know what that's what's in store for these other communities if we can just get those uh, intrusive barriers down and move them them forward. So the uh, first uh, guest, first of several guests we're gonna have on the show today, is Sheldon Grizzle. And Sheldon and I met probably one of my first trips to Chattanooga uh, because of a new type of incubator program where they were they were taking and fostering talent it wasn't a traditional incubator and i'm gonna actually let sheldon describe those uh those first days and then talk a little bit about what he's up to currently so sheldon welcome to the show
2: thank you welcome back to the show actually you've been here before good to be back it's been about a year that's right since last gig tank demo day
1: that's right that's right we were here then and uh, but I think when we first met, though, wasn't it at, um, at the company lab? Yeah, the
2: company lab. Yeah, now, what
1: was it about the company lab that was different? Because you guys had a different take yeah. on.
2: So, so the idea was, um, you know, that we wouldn't rebuild an incubator or a, a big, a big thing that could incubate startups for a long time. But there was a much bigger need in the community for helping connect entrepreneurs to mm-hmm. each other, uh, to investors, to mentors, to people who could help them get their businesses off the ground. And and so that's why we built CoLab, or the company lab, was to be this hub of connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, literal and physical, you <laughs> know, uh, but also as as the Gigabit network came about, it became also digital, mm-hmm. digital connectivity as right. well. So, uh, so we started that um, almost four years ago. We're coming up on our fourth anniversary. And and we've we've just been amazed at the progress the city has made in those four years.
1: So so basically you have grown with the city. I mean you were basically coming out the gate when
2: the city was announcing its gigabit network four years you're, ago. You're absolutely right. And uh, and and we noticed that um, that added fuel to the flame. Right, you know, we, right. We had these little embers that were burning, but we didn't. It, it hadn't coalesced yet into a movement, mm-hmm. and and that was really what we were trying to do: is create a movement around entrepreneurial activity. Um, but you know, maybe I can get to this in a few minutes. But every community needs something that's unique to it to help draw people to it, mm-hmm. um, draw talent in, to draw new ideas and you know innovative things, to draw capital, mm-hmm. um, to draw media attention and 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 so, when the gigabit network was announced, it was like ah there is there is a a thing that very few communities around the world have
0: mm-hmm.
2: and and it's clear that with the internet of things and three d printing and big data and all of this stuff coming down the you know down the pipeline that more bandwidth was going to be mandatory for communities to continue to innovate and so so it just seemed like a great place that we could um you know." Put, put our mark and, and continue to, to build our entrepreneurial community, and that's exactly what it's, what it's, mm-hmm. what it's helped us do.
1: Now, one of the things that I've talked to people about is that, you know, innovation, I mean, it's sort of like creativity. You really can't mandate it or structure it, though. Some people think that they can. You know, when politicians mm-hmm. announce, you know, they're going to create this great innovation center. It's sort of as if they have this master plan. But in reality, you really can't do that, right? You, you more or less, you have to create an environment yeah. in which innovation happens, and you sort of step back from
2: that. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I think you can't, you can't mandate creativity, right? Mm-hmm. You've, you've got it or you don't, but you can also, and, and you need creativity to, uh, that's a prerequisite for innovation. Mm-hmm. And there's other prerequisites for innovation as well. You need, you need a culture that's welcoming and tolerant of failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need capital. You need access to markets and media and ideas, and you need talent, and you need all of these things. Uh, I think the biggest thing that you need is the spirit of collaboration, mm-hmm. both between individuals, nonprofits, for-profits, government. You need all of these things coming together to to move things down down the field. And so while you can't set up a building and say, this is where innovation will occur, you can create an environment, and then, and then once you begin to create that culture, you can begin to add some structure to it, mm-hmm. and 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 then that structure can help, um, I think, inspire further innovation. Mm-hmm. So I I think I think a lot of communities get the cart before the horse. They they go and they designate a building or a place, and this is where innovation will occur. And, right. You know, the, it, it, stick in the sand. Yeah. Right and And that's okay, um, but I think a much better way to do it is the way that we kind of stumbled into it as a community, quite frankly, is just continuing to collaborate, which is what Chattanooga has always been great at and and just plugging away at it and now we've got things like the innovation district that's that's coming about organically it wasn't a it wasn't something that was mandated years ago and you know um and then it just occurred and then it, innovation happened innovation began and now an innovation district is emerging. Right, okay. So um, so yeah, I think, I think Chattanooga, intentionally or unintentionally, we've, we've done things the right way and it's exciting to see the progress. Now if we sort of gaze
1: into the future and you look at the, the small communities that are around Chattanooga that would love the opportunity to have the, the access, is what you're saying then is that those communities each in their own way can be an innovation center and that's really what the goal should be is that it's not as if you know Chattanooga is going to bring this magic wand and sort of you can predict what uh, you know innovation three towns over is going to look like it's basically you bring the technology and you
2: encourage a mindset that says let it grow I, I think infrastructure is definitely part of that part of that environment that helps breed innovation. Uh, It's one of the ways that you get access to markets, that you get access to um, ideas, that you get access to media, that those things can get access to Mm -hmm. you. And, And when you significantly slow that down or you can't get access to it at all, um, that that's a really difficult place to innovate right and and so i it, it's impossible for me to say what it's going to look like in um, you know some community that's a rural community outside of our footprint here but but I know for Chattanooga the infrastructure has been a core piece of creating um, a connected economy mm-hmm.
1: well I know that you're you're pretty busy and everybody on the meeting with is pretty busy, but I want to thank you for stopping by and my and pleasure. helping ce- celebrate this milestone for Gigabit Nation. My pleasure. Welcome so, back Chad News. No worries, always good to be back here. You know, I should also, you know, let the audience know that if you look through some of the past um, past uh, uh, interviews on on Gigabit Nation, there are a number of different types of communities that have attacked this issue of connectivity in a different way, each in its own way, and it's good to not only have the Chattanooga experience as a a benchmark, if you will, but to also look at some of these other uh, communities that have been on uh, the show, uh, Champaign-Urbana, Santa Monica, uh, Danville, Virginia, uh, Thomasville, Georgia. I mean, just the list of communities, both large and small, that we have talked to on this show uh, just represent to me the many faces of innovation and they are also, to me, the inspiration for why to, uh, to drive uh, this, this gigabit bandwagon and also to try to remove those barriers and impediments to us being able to move forward. Now, one of the things that uh, I found interesting about Chattanooga, being a high-tech marketing person from way back when, is that uh, the city has managed to market itself extremely well. And uh, I, I figured we couldn't really talk about, you know, three years of, of covering broadband and, and talking to Chattanooga without bringing back uh, Jed Marston, who is the um, VP of marketing for the Chattanooga Chamber of Commerce and a driving force behind the marketing of, of Chattanooga. And so, Jed, welcome to, back to the show, because you've been on before. Thanks, Craig. Yeah. Yep, you know, one of, one of our, uh, you know, great interviews. But let's talk about marketing because uh, I had this conversation a, a few days ago that communities are head down developing broadband networks in all its various configurations, uh, utility run, co-op run, uh, business, uh, pub- public-private partnerships. And no one's thinking about marketing, in my opinion. Right. And it's going to hit them one day. They're going to launch this network, and someone's going to look around and go, well, we need some presence. We need some marketing. So let's talk about marketing of a city, which is kind of an abstract thing, really, but it has been fairly well-focused.
3: Yeah, it, it, and from my perspective, not so abstract. I see why you're, you say it is abstract, but... Well, for a person who doesn't understand marketing, yeah, absolutely, it's an abstract absolutely, concept. Yes. Um, when when I first came to Chattanooga, um, the, uh, the chamber was really going through a transformation, and it had uh, been given some pretty steep job creation goals, mm. and we had a mandate to market the community to help meet those goals. Mm-hmm. And so we actually convened a community process in which we had uh, people from the city and the county, the, the local schools, all the people that market Chattanooga externally, got them all in the same room. And what we did was look at the branding of the city. Mm-hmm. And at that time, Chattanooga had a very well-developed uh, tourism brand. Okay. did not have a business brand. In fact, we did market research with business decision makers, and the feedback basically was, we've heard of you because of the Chattanooga choo-choo, but we don't have <laughs> much of an impression of you other than that. Um, so at least it wasn't a bad impression. That's right. was a good good step in the right direction right. for marketing. But we developed the Chattanooga Can Do brand. And right. that, that was a way to talk about Chattanooga's ability to work together to get these huge things done. And uh, in that context at that time, this is uh, – eight years before the Gigabit Network was something that we could talk about, mm-hmm. we began to tell the story in terms of the transformation of our waterfront, working together to get that done, recruiting Volkswagen. We, we got Volkswagen to come to a Brownfield um, site and transform it into the only lead platinum manufacturing facility in the world. I mm-hmm. mean, some pretty spectacular result. And then in that context, back in 2010, uh, when the Gigabit Network was coming online, Uh, We built relationships over the last eight years. We were able to uh, persuade the New York Times to tell the story there. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you can imagine, lots of media follows the Times. Right, right. We had uh, uh, about two million uh, – circulation of about two million between the Times and all the stuff that followed in the next two days from that one uh, PR hit. So from my perspective, I think – the thing, the thing that's necessary is for a community to understand what its business brand is, or whatever brand it's going to push, mm-hmm. um, outside of the context of, of technology, and then to make sure that what the message that's that's told in in, in terms of technology is complementary to that overall story. To the overall story. And the okay. other, the other that thing that's sense. important, mm-hmm. and this is, this is one thing that is very abstract, but it also brings us to the concrete. When you're branding a, a, a box of cereal, right, mm-hmm. you have total control. You could call it anything you want to. <laughs> you can, different colors on the different fonts. Mm-hmm. Who cares? The world, the world is the limit. And the, the box of cereal can't argue back. Right, But one of the challenges with community branding is that it's got to be authentic mm-hmm. because the people in the community have to embrace it and carry around and talk about it uh, because they're your primary way of, of promulgating the brand. Right, uh, Most communities, and we, we're included, don't have millions and millions of dollars to promulgate the brand what you need is to convert your own citizens into brand evangelists and have them carry it around and convey it for you. Mm -hmm. And we've been very successful in that because it is authentic to the people here.
1: Right. Now, I am of the opinion that any community, even though our community is different, can brand itself in some way, right? Because I've had communities on here as small as (laughs) Powell, Wyoming, which is like 5,000 people, Danville, Virginia, which is about 20,000, 30,000 people, they are very different places. And obviously Chattanooga and Kansas City have been, been here and so forth. But they, have seemed to have, they seem to have found a way, something to hang their hat on, right? With Danville, it was, well, number one, they had to rebrand why you want to come to Danville because they were having economic issues. So they turned to health care. They basically tied their, their hospitals together and they revamped health care. I and mean, then that became the, the focal point. Right, uh, uh, Loma Linda, California did a very similar thing with healthcare. There, they basically made that the focus of the brand. And Wyoming was just, you know, we're a nice place to, to visit. We've got good people. You know, there's variations, right? So from your perspective, you know, you sort of look again at the, you know, the topic of the day, which is you you've got communities that want to have this network come to them. What are two or three tips for either them or any real, you know, any community about how do you get moving in the right direction within marketing? Well, I think part of it is, um,
3: is understanding that there are different tiers when it comes to branding. Mm-hmm. Um, you have some super branded cities like New York, and New York has about 15 different brands depending <laughs> on whether you're talking about financial right. or entertainment or whatever, and but that's partly because they're one of the major media um, hubs of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, for a community like Chattanooga or most others, part of what you have to do is figure out who your target is.
0: Right. So we were
3: very focused on a business target. In the last few years, we've broadened out that business to include entrepreneurs, the venture network, all of those kinds of things. But still, you know, much in the same vein. Mm-hmm. So I think tip one is to be really thoughtful and really careful about who your target is, who are you trying to talk to, and to make sure that the message, the story of your community, while authentic, is targeted specifically to the folks that you want to connect with. Mm-hmm. I would say even today, um, Chattanooga, although though very well-branded among certain populations and in certain circles, we, we've still just begun to move the needle, like, worldwide on what mm-hmm. Chattanooga is all about, although there are pockets in Europe and Asia that know all about Chattanooga because of some of the things we've done. So that's thing one. I think thing two is to realize that when it comes to branding, what you're talking about is not a marketing campaign. It's not a tagline. It's somehow creating a story that's so vivid that people like Craig Settles uh, internalize that story and carry it around and talk about it, even though, you know, you're not from Chattanooga. Right. Um, But you understand what our story is, and you help us tell the story because you've seen it. You believe it's authentic, and you, you share it around. Um, And in order to do that, that means you have to go beyond creating a logo and doing a tagline. You have to come up with a continuing way to reinforce that there's authenticity to that brand. Mm -hmm. And the way that we've done that in Chattanooga is through a series of of business successes, business stories. Even now when we're, you know, beyond the point of, you know, being the the first, you know, that's no longer interesting Mm because it started a few years ago. But what we're doing is telling the story of the entrepreneurial successes that we're having, and they're pretty astonishing Mm -hmm. uh, for a community that's relatively new in the tech world to have uh, a local company that was just a year and a half old, uh, QuickQ acquired by OpenTable, Mm -hmm. a major technology player. And so we are very attuned to what's going on in our community, and we learn about those stories, and then we tell them externally in the context of our brand, Mm -hmm. which is we're this little community. You wouldn't expect to be able to do these things, but we're able to do them because we work them together. Right.
1: And the key thing, the point that I would make to every community is that the technology is not the tail that wags the dog, both in how you service people and how you market it as a service locally, but also how you package and market the city where the gigabit is incorporated. So it is basically it is, it is marketing Chattanooga as a forward-thinking, digitally savvy community. And oh, by the way, this gigabit network helps us get there. That's and, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. okay, because I, I see that in some of the, and, in the articles that come out.
3: And I think the other thing that there has been a shift in the last few years, and actually your next guest may be able to talk about this some as well. In the early days of the Internet, in the early days of application development, um, you could be a success just by creating cool software that everybody needed. Mm-hmm. And that, not that that's not still possible, but more and more, I'm seeing companies be successful not just because they launch a technology, but because they build a human group of users uh, that are using it or mm-hmm. leveraging it to do their business. Right. So another great story we have is a company called Bellhops, actually out of the Lamp Post Group. Maybe I shouldn't tell this because Jackson's no, in the room, no but right. it's a great story. <laughs> um, this company is less than two years old. And they developed uh, essentially a technology. They do – the original iteration was campus moves. And so they recruited these young college people and, okay. um, mm-hmm. and to do these moves for each other. And they, they invented a technology that allows the customer that needs the move to interface with the, the college students that are going to do the move for them.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, it's, you can't get any more labor-intensive than across-town moves. I mean, most of it is human beings lifting stuff and moving it around. But they created technology that when someone books a move, an email goes out to the the bellhops, as they call them, in that area. Mm -hmm. And the bellhops that jump on it first and say, we want that move, they book it. And then the system prompts them and that prompts the customer with text messages to interact with each other in various ways, leading right up to the point where they show up to make the move, uh, clock in. The customer gets to decide if if that clock in time was accurate, so the customer's um, receiving the benefit every step of the way. Um, And I think that's what we're going to see more and more of, very human-intensive situations
1: um, where uh, technology implements those things. Okay, Okay. all right, interesting. Well, then that is actually a good segue because my good buddy Jack has has come on in here. Jack, come on, come on, grab a seat. And, and Jed, thank you again for being back on the show. It's good to see you again. Pleasure to be here. It's going to be an awesome demo day, so I look forward to chatting with you some more. So 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 there's your your, your you know marketing one oh one reduced to its essential points for you know communities are going that are gonna leverage the broadband network to help it change or enhance that brand that it wants to put out there to to the world. And um, you know it, people may not think about it now. Uh, because you have so many other things to worry about. Some people are just at the beginning of getting their their broadband planning and their feasibility stuff going, but you've got to pay attention to the marketing because when all is said and done, when the network gets launched, whether it meets all of these lofty goals that we have established for broadband is going to depend 99% on how effectively you can market. So with that being said, I do want to say hello to, to Jack here and thank you for, Coming by? Good to see you. It has been a little bit. I mean, this is your first time on the show, isn't it?
4: I think it might be. Um, okay. I, I know we've, we've known each other for a few years, but I think this might be the first time I've, I've ever rated an actual appearance. <laughs> so
0: I'll, I'll
4: try it. If I stumble over my words, it's just nerves.
1: Oh, hush. So. Fine.
4: <laughs> we'll be
1: fine. We'll be fine. So, so Jack is with um, Lampost, which is a uh, VC group. But it's not just a BC group, and so not not to steal your thunder. Sure. what's all? What what is what is Lampost?
4: Well, you know, we we uh, we, you're right. We're a venture capital group for the lack of better terms. Um, but when given the opportunity like this, you know, I'd love to kind of explain a little bit more. We basically take the the financial capabilities, the check writing capabilities of a normal venture capital firm, and then mix that in with what we call true incubation. And you know you hear a lot about incubators and accelerators, and and we actually have a very distinct difference between the di- the two. you accelerators are great; we love them, love Gig Tank, love every every one of them that we run into. Um, but our incubation model is we actually stay with these companies just like parents mm-hmm. as long as they need. Okay. And so we we have some companies we've incubated for three months, some we've incubated for three weeks, um, and some, frankly, that we've incubated for three years. Okay, um, you know, everybody kind of has their own cycle and everything, and yeah, so we we spend a lot of time with our companies, and we really um really invest in the founders to the point of you know, probably. Too far at times, but okay. we, we when we invest in a team, we are going to have that team's back um, come hell or high water, and, and we've seen both. Okay. Um, and, you know, w- one great example is a company we invested in their first iteration, which was called Reticker, um, which was a, a, a news app, a ticker across the bottom of your screen. You you've, you've, We've all seen those point cast, shout, shout cast kind of thing. That didn't really work out, but the team was great. They then pivoted that into a a news aggregator um, app called Mm Fireplug, which uh, ran, didn't know at the time, but was running full full force right into a a company called Prismatic, which is actually doing some pretty cool stuff. Um, they were in that space. They pivoted out of that, had the team, had everything they needed. And now they are actually um, have a company called Ambition, which is a sales uh, tool, sales management tool. It's basically fantasy football for sales. So they can take anything you can measure. Uh, <laughs> they can turn it into fantasy football. And okay. frankly, if we're honest, uh, a lot of us spend a lot of time at our desk playing fantasy football certain times of the year. You won't put anybody's business in the street, but that well, we is won't. true. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Yahoo and CBS Sports and ESPN, they, they can give you some numbers that, that show you how popular that is. Their whole thing is they're going to turn everything we do at the office into fantasy sports. They're going to okay. have competition everywhere. And they were in Y Combinator last year and, and raised a bunch of money, and now they're, they're just rocking and rolling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was two and a half years into our, our journey with them, into the incubation period. So we, we take that term very seriously and very literally.
1: Okay. So we incubate for, um, for our investments to, to turn out better. Mm-hmm. So now, in, in how, how in, in the VC world has being in a gigabit city mm-hmm. changed? And what I mean by that is, do you get uh, more opportunities? Do you get better environment in which to nurture uh, some of these folks. I mean, how is in Europe sure. and being in the gigabit city affected the venture capital as a business?
4: Well, and you know, we've been along with Jed and everybody else. We have been cheerleading this this gig thing for years now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you and I met, I think, over three years ago yep. when we first, first
1: time I came to town. Yeah, first
4: started talking about this. And it has definitely been the the flag around which a lot has happened in
0: the mm-hmm. city.
4: Um, now that we're we're this far into it, I can actually say with conviction that we have seen companies that have come here just because of the gig.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and, you know, there are starting to be more and more practical reasons why these companies need, need that kind of bandwidth and that kind of connectivity. Mm-hmm. But it is still we're still seeing 80% of those are coming here because of what the gig means and what it represents. And it's it's creating this center of gravity that's pulling in the, the techie guy that was in his mom's basement writing an app in Middle Tennessee <laughs> is now here working in Chattanooga because mm-hmm. he's like, well, I don't – I didn't want to be working out of my mom's basement, but I didn't know where else to go, and I wasn't going to go to the coast. Right,
1: right, right. right?
4: Now now it's creating this opportunity, and with things like the, the company lab and gig tank and all these things around town, Um, it's creating this ability when when these dreamers wake up, they have somewhere to go. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be 2,000 miles away in three time zones or 1,000 miles north to Boston or New York. And it's creating this interesting opportunity. And what it's done is it's really unlocked a lot of untapped potential um, across the board, we, we see people that never dreamed that they were going to start a business, like these bellhop guys. Right, they, they frankly were a couple of uh, frat guys at, at Auburn <laughs> that <laughs> just saw it as, hey, if I pick up everyone's furniture, I get to meet everybody, and maybe I'll meet a girl. Right, I mean that that kind of was where they they started a little bit. All right, fair and, enough, fair enough. And then they they kind of met some some people that were like, hey, there's some, there's some entrepreneurial something in here. This is a right, business. Right, right, right. And then they met a couple tech guys, and then they met a couple other people, and they ended up in Chattanooga, and we were able to accelerate them, pour some gas on that fire. But had these resources and, and had Chattanooga's entrepreneurial ecosystem not been in place, they might have just kind of petered out after a couple years when they graduated and moved on to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we had this... This fly trap built, we were able to catch that fly, bring it in here, and really supercharge it. Now they are in a place where they're utilizing the gig for all of their infrastructure, and their their command center is pulling a lot of bandwidth. I'm kind of surprised they they've been spiking recently, and I was kind of expecting a phone call from EPB to maybe we are <laughs> using too much, but haven't gotten that call yet. So, um, but yeah, it's it's kind of it's hard to tell what comes first, but I know for a fact that having this asset here has been able. Has enabled us to draw more companies here, and we now see more companies. We're not drawing them; they're beating down our door to be here.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And so, very briefly, because uh, you know, I'm, I'm being mindful of everyone's mm-hmm. schedule, but uh, you can foresee then replicating that kind of dynamic. It won't be the exact same. Say, if if uh, the network goes, you know, five towns over, you know, a hundred miles north, or whatever that you can still create the, the environment that can, that can create the kind of thing that you're talking about.
4: Sure, and I, I kind of like it to either the Bell Labs or the DOD model, how, how they put their labs dispersed across the country. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at Oak Ridge, for instance, which is right up the road from us, you look at what those, those centers of knowledge and centers of creativity can, can do, and I think if we have gig cities I don't think anyone's in a position to be strategic about where they go. I think it's going to be very organic where they pop up. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe Google's in that position. Right. Um, right. But I think if, if we have them spread around the country, we can create these centers that then can collect from, I don't know if it's a hundred mile radius or a 500 mile radius, smarter people than me can maybe figure that right, out. Right. But I think we can really have these pockets that can then start talking to each other. And just like the early research institutes talk to each other with the internet, mm-hmm. um, I think we're going to start to see those pockets really create energy in, in the right spot um, and, and really do some cool things. Okay. So I, I look forward to Gig Cities 7 through 25. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know where if we're at 7 now, but I think it will be a lot of fun.
1: Awesome. Well, will you go on and nurture some money? And, uh, and thank you for stopping by. I look forward to seeing you at Demo Day, and we'll chat some more about yeah. all the craziness and stuff that you have going on. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Take care. It's a um, – as you can see, there's a lot going on in Chattanooga. And I think, you know, this This show has tried to capture some of that over the years. And we do an okay job at it. I mean, because there's just so much going on. But to me, that is what we should be looking for as people start to go, you know, this isn't an experiment anymore. This isn't government being frivolous or public entities being frivolous. This is, this is serious business deve- the developmental stuff that's going on here. Entrepreneurs are being made and encouraged. Uh, opportunities are being made. Markets are being opened. You know, there's just so much that's here. It's just, it, it, it leaves me speechless sometimes. Well, not often, but, you know, once in my while. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm extremely honored to have... Uh, Jim Ingram be with me today on the show because Jim has the distinction of being the very first interview for Gigabit Nation. And Jim, I want to thank you for sure, stopping by to sure. help celebrate this three years of
6: congratulations on three years. That's, that's a real milestone in itself.
1: It's amazing because I never yes. really dreamed when we were talking before because we didn't do this in person. I was right. back in California, and there was no real vision other than there was a bunch of people out there. With stories to tell, and so this is where it's going to be. And I used to have very scripted, you know, productions ahead of time. Now it's just like, get them on the phone. Let's talk about some broadband. <laughs> right. And it works. And yeah. it's, you know, so so Jim, let's. I want to focus on. I know again, everybody's time is short, but uh, smart grid, because yeah. in the in the scheme of things, you know, we're talking about all the bigger, more popular things that are happening. But at its root, the network here was for the purpose of smart grid. That's right.
6: That was that was the genesis of the fiber-to-the-home network. It was the idea that, that we needed to build a smart grid, smarter grid. We need to mm-hmm. modernize our electric system, which was over 70 years old. We need to use information technology to do that, like mm-hmm. just about every other industry in our country has been through in the last 30 years. Right.
1: And so in looking back over the last three years, what would you consider the one or two major milestones as it relates to the smart grid?
6: Well, I think I think that, that the things that are emerging today, and I don't know that it goes as far back as the first time you and I had this conversation three mm-hmm. years back, because some things are popping up today that nobody saw coming three years ago. I mean, that's the reality of it. Mm-hmm. The first is that, Three years ago, when you and I kicked your show off, it was a privilege for me to do that, but I keep a pretty good track, pretty good handle on what's going on in the energy markets. Mm -hmm. And nobody, and I mean nobody, thought that the United States was on the verge of becoming energy independent from a fuel perspective three years ago. Mm -hmm. It's forecast that next year will be the largest producer of oil in the world. It's forecast by the Department of Energy that in the next two or three years, we'll be the largest producer of natural gas. Mm-hmm. That's at a time when the amount of carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere has dropped 10% below 2005 levels. So you think about what that means. Our country is, today, we're importing oil, we're importing natural gas. We're actually going to be able to meet all of our domestic needs, and we'll have a surplus we can actually sell overseas, that's going to bring a manufacturing re- renaissance to our country. Cheap energy and factory automation is going to bring a renaissance to our country. What is key to that renaissance? A reliable, custom-made power supply to those particular industries. Mm-hmm. The rise of alternative generation and distributed generation. Costs are falling. Efficiencies are rising. So this is another import- very important part of the story. Storage technologies are becoming more mature as time goes by. It's just a matter of time before they stop being laboratory products and they start being vendor-supported products that you buy off the shelf. Mm -hmm. It's another tool for managing electric load. So, cheaper fuel, more manufacturing in our country, the capacity to provide your own generating capacity, and to store it and dis- to dispatch it when you need it most. This is this is this is a a watershed moment in the electric industry that, in my mind, goes all the way back to the time when Edison was starting the electric industry. <laughs> I mean, it really is that groundbreaking because the calculus of our business is changing rapidly. Mm-hmm. Energy efficiency. If you look at the the projected revenue growth in our business. It, it's almost flat. There is no new revenue. Why is that? Because we have these cleaner, alternative generation, distributed generation technologies. We have the bil- ability to, to store that. Instead of using uh, coal, as much coal and oil as we've used in the past, we go to natural gas, which is cleaner. Mm-hmm. We have hybrid vehicles becoming more and more prolific on, on the streets. And then the linchpin and the, the kind of the um, – Kind of the coup de grace, if you will, here, is the fact that, that in our system here in Chattanooga, we have all this data now mm-hmm. that is made possible by the fiber optic network. Okay. The low latency of the fiber optic network allows us to bring, bring massive amounts of data, billions, hundreds of billions of data points into our system almost instantaneously. It gives us the ability to send commands out to our electric system Mm -hmm. almost instantaneously. So we have an ability now to move away from the idea that electricity is something that we consume so much of it every month, and then we pay for it. And we have the ability to turn it into a service, very similar to our fiber optic services today, where you pay literally a flat fee every month,
0: mm-hmm.
6: and, um, and, you know, you get good, reliable service that you can afford, and it's tailored to your particular needs, not to the whole community's
7: needs. And that's mm-hmm. how
6: we've designed electric systems in the past. Everything's been grossly overbuilt.
1: Right, right, right. And now we
6: have ability, uh, the it's ability to customize
1: down to the... Exactly. So then, and last question, and I'll let you go. Um, is, then, the smart grid need... As people are starting to connect all of these dots, because like, as you said, you know, three years ago people weren't connecting these dots. As people start to connect the dots, do you think there's going to be a an increase, like a sizable increase, of utility companies, public or private, sort of having the aha moment, and then they become the champions for broadband in a big way. Because right now a lot of the champions for broadband are people in economic development and they're the folks who are, you know, worried about developing entrepreneurs coming to town and so forth. And Smart Grid is talked about, but it's not necessarily viewed as the lead champion. But, it, but what you're describing seems to me to indicate that it could be, that, that, that all of a sudden that could be the major driver in a lot more communities. I think we have
6: some miles to go on the road before the industry recognizes what you're describing. I wouldn't say that that's the case today. Um, On the other hand, I'll I'll say briefly, just to kind of close here, we've had uh, utilities from all over the United States and all over the world come to Chattanooga to see this system that we've built here, and there's a great deal of interest in it, in what it is, in how it works, and what the benefits of it are. Mm There are a lot of communities around the United States who are asking themselves these questions. Um, Have they figured out that it's real enough for them to put the time to figure out how to make the investment? Mm -hmm. And more important than that, how to make it work? Right. I think we have to keep working at that. Okay. Yeah.
1: So it is – it is yet to fully blossom in people's minds in the smart grid world what this whole gigabit thing really truly holds for them. But as they start to see the light, then, then, I, then I, things will. And, and I
6: think that day will
1: come. The, the sun will come up. That's yeah. all right. Yeah. Well, you guys still keep preaching the word. I'm sure okay. folks will be converting. <laughs> okay. Great,
6: Great <laughs> to yeah. see you. Great yeah. to see you, too. Congratulations on three years on the air, man. Thank you very, very much. Okay.
1: Hope to see a few more. <laughs> All righty. So as you can see, and the reason I brought up the, the smart grid question is because, you know, there's a, there's a issue of, of the business case for broadband. And as people criticize the, the public entity side of things, getting involved in broadband, I think people have to realize that on the public uh, side of things, uh, there are some key uh, activities that can cost justify having a gigabit network and i think that it's important to really think about those when it's time to you know fight for you know less state intrusion more uh... federal assistance to the public sector side of the community broadband equation because it's not going to be the large incumbents that are going to address these smart grid kinds of issues and issues for the public good. It is going to be those communities. And so, you know, I, I everyone who knows me and who has read my stuff know where I stand on that, so I probably shouldn't beat that particular horse anymore. But I do want to bring the discussion back to, um, you know, the environment that creates innovation. And because um, and this is a key part of the... Uh, the economics of broadband, and, and, and joining us right now is um, Mike Bradshaw, who's the executive director of the company lab uh, and, and gig tank director. So it is nice to meet you in person. I think we spoke on the phone a couple of weeks ago, right, about 3D printing. I was working on a, an article, and I know I called in here, and I was like in a hurry, so I don't remember all the, the particulars. If I got the information I needed, I wrote my story, and life is good. So that part is pretty cool. <laughs> Welcome to the show.
8: Well, it's nice to be here, Craig. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, we spoke a few weeks ago about the 3D printing track in Gig Tank, and that mm-hmm. was really exciting to have that uh, conversation with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very excited to host the very first 3D printing accelerator, okay. and we owe the uh, presence of the gig to, as the inspiration of, okay. of that track. But so we are also going to uh, have tomorrow, which is, uh, by the way, happy anniversary to you. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank we you. share an anniversary because this is our third gig tank coming up tomorrow morning. Oh, this is true. This is the third and one. You were here for the 2012. Yep. I
1: and have been a loyal participant. So I it was crazy. <laughs>
8: and I suspect it's going to be crazy tomorrow. We have 800 people uh, coming really? to the Girls Preparatory School. which just got a lovely campus and a... A gorgeous auditorium to host that many people. It has to be like two, three hundred people more than last year. It is well over two or three hundred people. Mercy. I think we're going to have to order some more sandwiches. Oh boy! Oh boy! Uh, <laughs> it's uh, get in line early. It's very exciting. Uh, as you, you may know, uh, EPB, the Electric Power Board, mm-hmm. uh, facilitated our smart grid track okay. this year. So we're not only doing the 3D printing accelerator, but we have a uh, track that focuses on the smart grid. And we have another track that focuses on healthcare applications related to the gigabit network. And uh, so tomorrow we're going to have 11 teams coming up, okay. which is about 40% larger than last year. Holy moly. The crowd has grown accordingly. <laughs> and we've got seven pure play 3D printing teams that uh, are fielding applications from healthcare applications, uh, 3D printing of human tissue mm-hmm. to uh, pre-surgical models uh, all the way to uh, the production of industrial equipment on, uh, on metal printing machines. Very exciting breadth. Mm-hmm.
1: Now this is a good time to ask the, the $60,000 question, which I try to ask in every needs assessment I have ever done, which is what can you do as a group of application developers with a gig that would be really difficult if you did not have a gig? Yeah. Well, that's, that is the, the, the big-ticket question. <laughs>
8: I'm, as an old developer, and I'm many years out of it now, mm-hmm. but I, I actually many years ago now to develop software applications that worked on 1,200 K-bit uh, modems. Okay uh, it was pretty slow mm-hmm. You had constraints of the environment as uh the thing that you had to worry the most about as a developer. Right? Mm-hmm. you had to write all of your code to accommodate the very, very, very low bandwidth at the time. we didn't know it was low bandwidth. We thought it was great to even have any at all, okay, right uh, and so today's world where you have ubiquitous broadband, uh you think, okay, well, that's great, you know who could ever need more than 10 megabits, up and down, <laughs> symmetrical, right? Who could ever use more than 2,400 KBOT? The right? eternal quest, yes. Yeah, the eternal quest. And so I, I think one thing that comes around is that uh, as as we're looking at the development or the uh, adoption of broadband around the country, ultra-high-speed broadband, low-latency mm-hmm. networks, you're going to see the developers less and less have to design with constraints in mind, and they can go right after what they what they need to do. Okay. And those constraints still exist. right. Uh, So we'll see a lessening of the constraints on the one hand, but you'll also see the development of whole industries where you have interconnected machine to machine collaboration, let's say, where latency is a real issue. You can't do it now because of latency issues, where you have the operation of one machine that has to be timed very, very uh, closely with the operation of another machine. We're gonna see a whole new world of micromanufacturing develop around that. Uh, So there are several areas that you can go as well. In the very human area, we have here in Chattanooga the development of a um, what's called a narrow provider network. It's uh, 120 medical imaging labs Mm -hmm. here in town. That before you can join this narrow network, you have to join. uh, You have to have the gigabit network hooked up into your uh, shop, and Mm -hmm. so this allows these radiologists to share. Their medical imagery in real time with each other to share diagnostic information with one another uh, and to help their patients out. That industry is
1: already developing here. Mm-hmm. So this is a you know this is a good you know segue. I'm very happy that you stopped by because this actually sort of presages Wednesday's show because I'm going to have a couple of the folks from the 3D printing track um, here to to talk about that specifically because I feel like the 3D printing world, besides being a mystery to me uh, in, in many respects, hasn't been talked about a lot in the context of broadband. I mean, we talk about it in terms of economic development and healthcare delivery and a number of other things that have become fairly familiar, but we haven't talked much about uh, 3D printing. And I think 3D printing holds certain potentials that if people really could get the rein around it, I think it would change you know, or maybe accelerate their interest in, in moving their communities networks forward. So, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your thoughts and, and insights on that. So, you know, we'll, and we'll talk more tomorrow for sure. Certainly. And I appreciate I you stopping this. by. Thank you very, Thank very you much. Thank you very much, Craig. You have a great day. Thank you. You too,
8: and happy anniversary. Again. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. So so we see, um, and I definitely encourage all of you to uh, be with us on Wednesday. Um, I'm having some scheduling uh, things we're trying to work out, but we'll probably be, be starting at the same time. Uh, but the, the 3D printing world and what kinds of bandwidth that are required to make 3D printing actually a reality is insane. And so you, you really, ta- you know, we, uh, you know, Mike and I were talking about this this issue of you know the need for the gig. You know, there's just things you can't do clearly um, without it. Uh, another aspect of the the Chattanooga Gigabit Experience that I talked about in a couple of articles back in the day, uh, on after one of my first trips, is, is the education side, because at that time, three years ago, I think the city uh, and and uh, the gig, uh, the Gigabit Champions were just starting to develop a a, uh, a strategy for incorporating the uh, college education community. And so we want to talk today a little bit about that. And I'm extremely happy today to have uh, the Chancellor from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, Steve Engel, be a guest today. So Steve, welcome, I know this is your first uh, trip
7: to the the show.
1: And uh, I I appreciate you taking time to, to stop by and say hello. Well,
7: thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So let's talk about, you know, your perspective as, you know, as Chancellor and you guys have been doing stuff with the, the, the city and the gig thing for a bit. Um, what opportunities, short list of, of opportunities, or maybe the one or two top opportunities that you see that are mutually beneficial for you know, the, the, the network operators and the university?
7: I think that uh, our access to Internet, too, Um, in terms of uh, broad distribution. Mm -hmm. Um, Having musicians in San Francisco and Chattanooga collaborate in real time Mm -hmm. uh, is an option, something that's done now. To uh, take advantage of uh, the research, creative discovery opportunities that go on, getting students involved, it's one thing to look at information and content but today that's available everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's about how do you apply it to solve problems. So, as we look at how do we use this to uh, to help educate our students, develop new companies, drive the economy, solve problems in, in our society, I think, as an educational tool with the application in mind, working with creative people, mm-hmm. we prepare our students for a future. Um, that they're going to live with that is dynamic, it moves quickly, um, and it takes great creativity, challenging conventional wisdom. That's mm-hmm. not always what we've been good about in higher education, Right. but it is our future, and it's where we're at now. How do we empower that? So I think this is a great opportunity for us to interact with our community. Um, Access like the um, U.S. Federal Ignite Grant, that as a university we were able to get that Mm -hmm. using um, the gig and show how that has impact here uh, in this community.
1: That has been, uh, you know, you you bring up good programs, the Ignite program and so forth, and and talking about how, you know, influencing the education of the students, which is, you know, definitely a, a key factor here. In the course of, we'll call it my time in technology, right, so I started becoming aware and actually started doing PR work in technology back when the Apple uh, was the big thing. And if I I look at the youth, you know, call it K-12 through and then the college youth, I think that there were three areas that were, like, milestones, if you will. There was the Apple, because I think that changed – how like a future generation approached graphic design and a whole number of other uh, activities because what was happening is that kids were using Apple and kids were using Macs in college, and it was reshaping their way of working with a computer. And they went off and they became uh, managers and executives and you know, workers uh, in the workforce that shaped you know, computing in, in, in a large sense. In uh, 2000, thereabouts, I wrote a number of articles about uh, mobile devices and how mobile devices and wireless devices were changing the way education was happening, but also in the way that it was changing how education was happening, it was changing the way future managers would then approach their particular companies. Like there was a greater acceptance of wireless technology within the building. There was a greater acceptance of mobile devices. This concept of just being anywhere and just, you know, opening up a laptop and starting to work, I think was, was really took hold to a large extent in, in the colleges. So now we look at the gigabit and, you know, you look at things that what, you know, your college is doing, uh, what gig tank is doing, what a number of other programs are doing is that I think we're creating, and you tell me if this is right or wrong, but creating, a new, the next generation of workforce, and shaping it in a very, call it specific way.
7: I I think we are. And, you know, this Gig Tank uh, event tomorrow, which has been going on for the summer, um, we've had the uh, teams in our campus housing, but until this year, we've never had a team. Mm -hmm. Um, I... That was something I asked a year ago as I came. Why don't we have faculty a team in and the way? Right, right, right. So we do have our first team. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have some you know, internal competition next year to look at how do we prepare some good teams. And then the ones that don't make it to GigTank, what do we do?
0: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, how do we work with them? There are places like CoLab where there's great opportunity in this community. Right. So I, I think that um, defining... Uh, what is cooperation in uh, the assembling creative people together? Right. Um, you know, we have um, great young faculty in digital arts, graphic arts area who ought to be a part of this too because mm-hmm. presentation, um, how do you have things come across? It's that visual catch on a handheld device, on a computer screen. It's got to transcend different platforms there's a knack to that. Right. It really meets with the whole um, set of multidisciplines we have on our campus but the fact that you have to operate in partnership with people across disciplines in a very interdisciplinary way. Right. So I think this really fits where higher education is going today. It's not building silos. Right. It's building creative interdisciplinary teams. We have some of these disciplines. We can help prime this. We need to be challenged by the entrepreneurs, by other creative people who say, you can do this. Right, um, right, And so I think we'll feed on each other and we'll be a part of this. And what's happening in Chattanooga right now is a great example of this. Mm-hmm. We'll be better because of our response to what we're being asked to do and our what if. Right, right. And, and then they'll have a what if and it will move. And I think having this infrastructure empowered by um, – you know, the gig network, what can we do? We've sat down with EPB and some of our faculty and said, you know, you can read 150,000 power meters every five milliseconds. And what do we do with that data? <laughs> Turn it into information that is anonymized so we're not doing anything, but it's got to help with managing a grid. Mm-hmm. It's got to help with power generation. And how can we work with that and help? So I, I think that um, there's some things we don't know the answers to yet, mm-hmm. but we know we can do it. It's like having electricity and you don't have the devices developed yet. right. but we have this network. What can we do with it
1: and i and I think that you know in in the end, you know and sort of my my
7: word to you know the audience
1: is that um you know we shouldn't those outside of the academic realm should not be looking at oh, gee, isn't this interesting that they're teaching kids a new way and and teaching them a new way to work with faculty, we should be thinking this is the future of how business is going to operate. That, That process, that collaborative process, that removing of silos, removing of hierarchies is going to be the future. So the business managers of today need to look at what you are doing with EPB and doing within the Chattanooga community as this is the future of business management. Because all of those folks you're working with, you know, as students, are the next generation managers or entrepreneurs or, you know, whatever they're going to be in five years.
7: Absolutely.
1: Well, this has been very enlightening. I hope to uh, continue this conversation because I think that there's a lot to be said about, uh, you know, what you, what you folks are working on here. And I definitely appreciate you taking time to come by and, and visit today. And so, you know, we'll, we'll talk some more for sure.
7: Okay. Well, thank you very much.
1: No worries. Excellent. Have a good day. So, you know, so keep that in mind when we talk about um, uh, the education realm. It's not about educating and we're sort of learning how to do and be better educators. We've got to, you know, the old dog's got to learn how to learn from uh, this whole collaboration of technology and college and education. And so that's, that's a big deal. That's a very, very big deal. So, um, One of the things I wanted to uh, touch on while I was here uh, is is the TV side of of broadband, Um, because I think there's a change happening there that is going to really have a significant impact on a lot of discussions about where does broadband go. Um, And my past discussions about TV is that I'm generally saying, you know, as a small community, if you're building a network, you have to really think about, do you want to offer TV services? And uh, I'm very happy to uh, also have joining me today is um, a good friend who has been here uh, on the show before. I have. Katie, it's well, it's good to see you it's back. It's
5: nice to be here. And congratulations! Oh, it's thank been you. Three years. It
1: has been three. Wow! Wow, yeah. that's great. Three years, 200 shows, a whole lot of talking.
5: Thank you <laughs> for everything you do to advance the cause, though. We do appreciate that and recognize that.
1: No worries. So let me talk about this tricky sure. issue, and I call it tricky because um, four years ago, if I talked to anyone like uh, Lafayette, uh, Wilson, any of the other communities that were doing triple play as part of their community or utility network, there would be a lot of moaning and complaining about the TV side. You know, It was a lot of work, a lot of money, and it was hard to make a buck at it. All right? So three years later, from when you and I first sat down, when I, when I made my first trip to Chattanooga,
5: Has the dynamics of delivering TV content changed? I think definitely it's changed since we launched uh, years ago. Um, You know, we looked at video and recognized that it was a necessary part of the triple play. Right. That um, while it may not drive quality of life or economic development as uh, Internet or broadband products might typically, it certainly represents. A form of entertainment that that um, customers want, and they want it in their home. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ask me how it's changed, I think, oh, especially over the last three years, uh, people are no longer content to sit at home in their recliners and watch videos. They <laughs> want to be yeah. able to take it with them. They want to be mobile. That's right. They want to watch it when they want to, where they are. Um, so that has challenged us to take our original video offer and expand it over time. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll see that in other deployments as well. Um, you know, over the last year, we spent a lot of time launching a new product called epb to go which is our mobile offer for video. And you'll see that product grow over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the consolidation going on in the video industry, all of us are competing against, against really big companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that makes you better, that makes you a better competitor, and it makes them a better competitor as well. Um, I think for those of us in, in these sort of markets who are, are geographically confined, you gotta listen to your customers, and I think that's the advantage that, w- that we have in this market, is that we're local, and we listen to what our customers say, and we try to deliver what they're asking for. Mm-hmm. So, now,
1: one of the things I think is changing, or will change, is that ultimately TV and video are just a bunch of ones and zeros as everything else. Mm-hmm. So this old school method of, you know, you got to build out your head ends and you got to put stuff on tape and and you have this I don't know very structured process of delivering content. I mean, think beta and VCR and if you ship all of this craziness to ones and zeros, you don't need the same physical infrastructure. And that it changes then the dynamic then of how you interact, how you pay for content, how you deliver content, and so forth.
5: Well, well, certainly we've seen, even in our four years, have seen a, a large consolidation of the equipment we have in our head in. You know, mm-hmm. When we first launched, we needed you know, 200 and some odd servers just to deliver video. Over time, that's been cut to about a quarter of that. Now, Mm -hmm. as we've expanded services, we've been able to repurpose that equipment and use it to deliver other things. Um, But just in that short amount of time, we've seen a shift in, in the investment required to get into the video. But, you know, content is still delivered. Pretty much the same way from the content sources. Mm-hmm. I mean, you still have it on satellite. You're still bringing it down. You're still going through those steps. What you do with it once you get it is really where the provider can step in and make a step in and make a big difference for customers. Mm-hmm. Now, as
1: you know, we look at smaller communities uh, doing doing internet stuff. Mm-hmm. Is the changes that you're describing is it going to make it easier for smaller communities to uh, build and deliver services,
5: you know, I think yes, I think so. I think the capital investment required to get into the video market will continue to come down over okay. time, which will make it easier for smaller operators to get into the business. Um, you know, broadband is still the key here, though. You still got to have, uh, you still got to have that fast internet up and down right. to be able to have a quality video experience even if I'm watching it on my laptop. Nobody wants to see that spinning wheel <laughs> going around it. Oh, yeah, the Mac wheel of death. That's right. You never want to watch two minutes of something and then have to sit and wait for right. like thirty seconds. Right, right. So uh, at the end of the day, broadband um, broadband's still key uh, to delivering non traditional type video even to your laptop and smartphone. Mhm.
1: So now if uh the world were to swing in what I will call the in favor of the community broadband world. Um, And you were able to deliver uh, services in other communities. How, I don't know, portable is the, the TV side of the business? I mean, can you just basically throw down cable and boom, you're now, you know, three, five counties over and.
5: Well, Technically, you, we can do that today uh, if we had if we had the laws in place that supported that. So yes, to answer your question, um, you just need a high speed connection to get video from our location here to another community, mm-hmm. and have it. Uh, you would have to have a small amount of equipment there to to regenerate it and get it out. Um, the bigger issue really is with we've got to have an underlying um, change really in the way our content sources view our ability to uh, deliver it. Right, okay. So. Once Hollywood and the studios come along, um, I think we'll be in good shape to be able to do those sort of things. Okay. I really do. So, so there's a certain level
1: of, of portability. So I should now stop cautioning uh, uh, communities that TV is, is this cross that you have to bear and maybe present it more as a, a still challenge, but at the same time something that's much easier to manage. Uh,
5: just given the realities of, of how things are, are changing within that world, certainly, and, and customers still want that entertainment option. So they most we'll assuredly do. Excellent. Well, thank you for stopping by. Thank Good, to see, Good to see you again. T- take care. Do you take it easy?
1: So, so we are. You know, we're covering a lot of ground here, obviously. But you know, in some respects, you can't talk about the Chattanooga story. Without getting into the complexities, and as I look at the three years of the show uh, from where things were when I got this call, why don't you come over to Chattanooga and see what's going on here? Uh, which was in the years that the show launched, um, I said, sure, let's let's see what's going on. And so there has been a lot that has evolved and along with what has evolved in Chattanooga in the industry in general, you know, are the things that, that Katie and I have talked about, that, that Jack and I have talked about in terms of VC and creating an, an environment. And one of the things that has also changed, I believe, is the, um, the relationship between government and the community. As a result of having a uh, high-speed infrastructure in place, and so I'm off, often um, uh, looking to bring on, you know, the the big the big dogs in the in the uh, in in the war, in the uh, local communities, and and talk to a few mayors here and there to get a sense of how is government. Uh, changing as a result of of, um, having this technology. And I am extremely happy to have on the show today also the mayor of Chattanooga, Andy Burke. Andy, thank you, your honor, for for taking time to to join join Well, I'm glad to be here.
9: Happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're always happy to celebrate special occasions here in Chattanooga. I'm sure you guys are. Go out to dinner, (laughs) throw a nice party, whatever for your anniversary. We want you to spend a little money. And there you go. And there you go. So let's talk about the
1: um, the mechanics of government, okay, so Chattanooga is a fairly large sized city. In your estimation, what are maybe one or two of the key ways that technology has helped your government structure be more effective, more responsive to the community?
9: Well, the first thing to understand is that uh, the gig is changing us in a lot of ways it's really most importantly, changing our conception of ourselves. Okay, we're a mid-sized southern city. Right, uh, we're not thought of as being at the head of a curve. Usually, we're thought of as being at the end of the curve. And so, for us to be the place with the fastest, cheapest, most pervasive internet in the Western Hemisphere, that really helps define who we are. Mm-hmm. Certainly, on on the government side, we're trying to take advantage of that, um, and we're you know we try to think about how we can use this. to make our government better, Mm -hmm. and also to spur economic development. Um, To make our government better, there's a couple of things that go in line with this technology focus. First of all, we're trying to open up our data. Um, That's a real movement, as you know, and um, making sure that we are open about what we're doing helps us with transparency. Mm -hmm. People know more about what's happening in Chattanooga. But it also helps economic development because we want, whether it's a civic startup app, or a a new business, entrepreneurship can really come from opening up government data, putting it out there, transmitting it across our gigabit system so that um, people know if you want to come up with the solution to the most recent housing issues that Chattanooga faces, or a transit app, app, or um, something that has to do with, um, you know, economic development and the ways in which uh, energy operates all those things are going to be more available here than anyplace else because our data is open we're putting it out there and using our gigabit system to do it
1: hmm now has it um, had any downside you know some people like to say oh there's you know technology comes in and it changes things and sometimes it's not for the best and you know obviously we in the industry are very big champions of of broadband and you know faster speed is good uh, do you in overall feel that the, net, the, the, the technology has been a net win for, for government here? Yeah, it's, it's
9: a huge win, but what, what our struggle is is to make sure that it doesn't uh, grow the divide um, that already exists digitally. Right. So the digital inclusion piece that, that we face is both – has more opportunity and also more peril because when you increase the opportunities on the high end – Uh, Yes, you've got people who are participating in the fastest internet, uh, new businesses, entrepreneurship, Mm -hmm. all those things that we love to brag about. We don't want there then to be a bigger gulf between people who have very little access to technology. And so one of the things that I've been very focused on is how do we spread that opportunity across the entire spectrum of our population here in Chattanooga, not just among a segment. Right, okay. Now, I would contend that
1: the challenge of a city uh, from the government perspective is to not just build a technology that has all the promise of delivering X, Y, and Z, that there has to be a willingness to deliver a set of programs to ensure that that technology is used appropriately that people learn uh, and one, one quick example was in Seattle where they uh, in essence wired a retail area of the city and they're all happy about it because we're getting all these businesses online And what they found out was that no one had prepared the business owners. And a lot of these folks were uh, older business people who had always done things with maybe a minimal use of the computer, definitely no interaction with the Internet. And because they didn't have the proper training, they basically hit a wall and had to basically retool and go
9: back at it again
1: because they hadn't put the right programs in place.
9: Is, is this a valid concern, do you think? Of course. Uh, we want to be able to take advantage of the asset that we have. That's really what you're talking about. And if right. we just, you know, if, if you just put out there this huge pipe, which is our fiber optic network, mm-hmm. but nobody has any training or enthusiasm about what to do with it, it will just sit there. So um, for us as a community, we've spent a lot of time trying to get organized in taking advantage of the asset. And a couple of things that I've done Um we have a Chattanooga Forward initiative. And for those of you who are interested, you can go to Chattanooga.gov, and there's a report that's really an excellent report. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure if you're talking to Ken Hayes today or if you talk to him. We Ken uh, can... and I will meet after the okay. So, this show. Okay, so so one of the things you could talk to him about is that we put together a task force on gig, tech, and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And it was about how do we take advantage uh, of our growing tech ecosystem in the gig. Mm-hmm. Um, and we identified a bunch of different things that we need to do uh, in order to make sure everybody in our community benefits and that we get the maximum benefit uh, from the from the structure. So um, I started a new – I actually took an old nonprofit called, um, called the Enterprise Center, and I repurposed it. And okay, said, right. I know that one. Now you're our new – uh, tech Gig and Entrepreneurship uh, Center, and they are looking at things of how do we how do we grow these businesses and make sure they're able to take advantage of the tech industry and our, and our gig.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
9: how do we um, get more digital inclusion so that our Title I kids um, can have access to the Internet at school, at home, and, and wherever they are? Um, And then most importantly to me is to begin an innovation district. Um, uh, That is really critical. I believe we live in the innovation century. Mm -hmm. What uh, we have as human beings is creativity and ideas. Anything else, uh, anything that can be done by a computer or robot in the future will be done by a computer or robot in the future. So for us to participate in the growing economy we've got to have ideas and creativity and, and innovation and an innovation district is a way for all of us um, to participate bringing in uh, research university existing business new business mm-hmm. entrepreneurs and to, to create the circumstances that as you say will allow everyone to um, to come together and and find those next steps in the Chattanooga economy.
1: Excellent. I think we have a caller on the line, but before I get to them, I want to ask one last question because I know you definitely are a busy person. Um, It is my observation and strong belief that when you get to the local level, that community broadband in whatever shape it takes, whether it's utility-owned, whether it's public-private partnership, the level, there is a low level of partisanship, right? When, When people in the community decide that they need and want the network, they pretty much bring the parties together, the outliers, all of these folks come together. From your observation, is that true? I mean, basically, is this a nonpartisan adventure once you get down to the local level?
9: Well, local politics is nonpartisan, so that, that helps. And mm-hmm. uh, even though I'm a Democrat and have served in the legislature as a Democrat, um, you know, I ran for office not with uh, a partisan label beside me when mm-hmm. it came to, to being mayor. Uh, We also know that there's a lot of uh, money at stake whenever you start talking about broadband, that there are interest groups that that, uh, for various reasons, you know, are interested. And so I think what we can say for sure is it's controversial. People will um, take advantage of whatever platforms they can to speak on it. And so while local politics is generally less partisan and therefore it doesn't um, end up being a partisan issue, that doesn't mean that, that people won't use even partisan, uh, partisan levers to, to try to change the way things are going.
1: Okay. Well, I'm sure you guys will rise above all of that as well. Thank you again for stopping by, Mr. Mayor. I really do appreciate it.
9: Thank you, and again, happy anniversary.
1: Thank you. Have a great day. Is there a caller on the line? Nope, guess not. I think we lost that one. Oops. Ah, these things happen. Thank you very much again for, uh, you know, for having the mayor here. It is really great to uh, see that, um, you know, there is this level of support from pretty much from top to bottom, and the city is behind uh, the network. And to – I should probably say we should probably keep very quiet because there's a librarian in here. And, uh, shh, got to be quiet. No, actually, I'm kidding around, but I have – the uh, director of the Chattanooga Public Library, who stopped in, Corinne Hill. Hi, Cor- Corinne. How are you? And do I have to speak softly, or can we talk at a? Oh no, no. <laughs> I'm I'm
10: quite boisterous. Fine. Okay.
1: All right. I'll. Sure, visit your library then, because that sounds like where the where the party is.
10: Absolutely.
1: So you just actually won an award, didn't you, for uh, Librarian of the Century, or what? What was your actual? What was the actual? Librarian of the Year.
10: Okay, close enough. Library Journal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twenty fourteen, my year.
1: (laughs) Okay, there you go. So it was interesting. I, I saw this phrase "Library of the Future" when they when they sent me your bio over, and so from your perspective, what does the Library of the Future look like if you're you know if you want to just talk about it in the context of Chattanooga, but what, what what's the library of the future all ebooks?
10: Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think it's going to be a, it's going to be a mix of whatever the community needs
0: mm-hmm.
10: um, That's one of the beauties of, of being a library is that we we help community solve problems We help people solve problems, and so we provide whatever you need mm-hmm. to solve those problems and to make the city better, make Excellent. your community better. So whether that's e-books, access to information, whether it's print for enjoyment, film, music, um, and as we move forward, is it a, is it going to be access to software? Is it going to be access to apps? Is it going to be, you know, what kinds of things are we going to be lending? Mm-hmm. Um, because we, I mean, we really. Nailed the sharing community, right? <laughs> <laughs> we're all
1: about if you're the just sharing, right? If you're talking about open access and sharing, and sharing we're, we're, you know? we're the
10: ones you talk to, right? So um, so anyway, that just makes perfect sense to mm-hmm. me. But I really, I, I, was, I listened in a little bit, you know, with the mayor who was just here. And quite frankly, I think what made it a game changer for Chattanooga Public Library is access to high-speed broadband. Mm-hmm.
1: So <clears throat> now how does that... Um, manifest itself. I, mean, cause I think people have a structured view of what a library is and they have a structured view of what broadband is and they're not, other than, the, you know, it's like when people talk about on the news broadband and libraries it's usually, well that's where people who don't have broadband at home go to get broadband which I know is a valid sure. aspect but there's got to be a little bit more than that.
10: I really think that um, having access to high speed broadband like you do in Chattanooga where it is wicked fast means that I can provide services, the same services that I would provide when I was in Dallas, Mm -hmm. right, with Mm -hmm. practically no speed. I'm just delivering better services. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that it's like the Apple iPhone that you didn't know you needed it until you got it.
0: Right. right? You didn't know you
10: (laughs) needed that smartphone. Once you get exposed to having access to high-speed broadband, it changes everything you do. Because all of a sudden, everything happens faster. Mm-hmm. Like you don't watch sit and watch the a wheel turn. Right. You know, it, it, I mean, and I leave Chattanooga, and I don't realize how powerful it is until I leave. Right. And I go somewhere like Washington, D.C. or Chicago, and I'm like, how do you guys live like this?
0: Mm-hmm. It, just, <laughs> it just
10: sits and spins. How do you get anything done? Right. right? And so being a library where we've been delivering public computing for 20 years, 25
0: years, right.
10: the 90s. So being able to deliver that, really well where it's not a frustrating experience that's the first thing Mm -hmm. the second thing is being especially with the freelance job market the way that's exploding Mm -hmm. having having that kind of access for that freelance community where they can try out new things and they can experiment so now you've got that whole entrepreneur side of things Mm -hmm. that you can help them get off the ground because that's free public space that's free access to high-speed broadband. That's access to furniture and tables and Mm -hmm. all this other stuff that they can work while they get their feet under them and get their product, whatever it is, up and running. Mm -hmm. It's a place for people to start.
1: Right. And then one of the things that, by the way, are you from Boston?
10: No, I'm Canadian originally. Really? Yeah.
1: Because I've never heard anybody from Tennessee use the phrase wicked fast.
10: hmm okay. <laughs> so i was like
1: holy for holy
0: yeah,
1: and i have to think i'm sorry i want to take a little shout out two of my most loyal listeners for these three years has been chuck sherwood who is actually from massachusetts where wicked fast is a everyday phrase for him <laughs> and ed does and i'm just sitting here going holy
10: for holy so i know
1: i know i know chuck would want me to ask you that question <laughs> no
10: I've, I've been around was in dallas miami I was born in Canada. I've been all over. And I have to say, also, Bill Wallace has dropped my in man, yay,
1: Bill. from from U.S. Ignite. Bill, Great. thank you. Congratulations. Thank on you. your third anniversary. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, yeah. all my That's friends are coming time. around. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's like endurance beyond belief. I can't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still here. I'm still here. Why don't I just put to this okay. side of the sure. table? Sure. And, um, and you both can actually comment on this question, you from the librarian perspective and Bill from the app's perspective. But – um, someone once said that if you use the library model and sort of transpose it to, like, apps, that you get some folks creating gigabit apps and then take them to a library and have people borrow them or try them there. In essence, use the, you know, the book concept of the Leave it the Beaver days and apply that to technology. And that would give people a way to you know, test out an app and, and for people to sort of maybe define certain needs that they have because they could play with an app and say, well, this doesn't work, so I need something else. We're but already let's doing get, that. So you already are. Okay. Yeah,
10: we're already doing that. Hyper Audio is an example. We've mm-hmm. just got some funding um, through Mozilla. And one of the things they're doing is turning that software or that app mm-hmm. over to the teams and saying, blow it up. Tell us what's wrong with it. Uh-huh. So, Figure it out and tell us where. What did we miss? Mm-hmm. What oh, yeah. did we miss? And, and no, if anyone's going to find it, it's. That's right. There's
7: another
4: easy. one, uh, the KC Lending Library, mm-hmm. um, software lending library, where they're Quiet. basically making available. They're basically making available from Kansas City and mm-hmm. Chattanooga and Burlington, uh, very high-end software that would be too expensive for students,
0: mm-hmm.
4: and you can use. They can students can use it from their homes. Right. Um, which but to request a gigabit network to, to do okay. effectively.
1: And that's really where, we, you know, we've had... Um, that's what we were talking about. Right, and we had Mike in earlier talking about... Uh, and I'm sorry, not Mike, but uh, the Chancellor, Chancellor Engel, in talking about, you know, the changes in education, right? So the staple of my time in college when I was, you know, being a serious student was the library. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the gig changes... The use of the library even in, in in the educational sense, I mean basically you're not letting not only letting people play with stuff but changing how they develop and how they think through things
10: mm-hmm. absolutely and it's um, but yeah you're taking them through the process through the whole iterative process so mm-hmm. people are learning that you know you have to fail in order to succeed right because it's failure 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 success right you know as you develop this stuff mm-hmm. um, and I think that's really important, but I also think what's what the library is almost becoming ubiquitous in an educational environment where you talk to students who graduate and they will tell you with utmost certainty they never stepped foot in the library the whole college career, mm-hmm. but they used every library resource. <laughs> that they,
0: they, just didn't, they just didn't step didn't in, the realize, right, they I, in the building. Didn't realize They weren't in the building. and left the building. Right, right, right. So I feel it's becoming
4: almost ubiquitous. we talked about your
1: fourth floor here yeah. already, uh, the makerspace
10: which
0: is
1: so great, yeah. So we got it. So Chuck actually does ask a question. He wants to know if um, if you're going to be uh, setting up a mar- makerspace to complement the hacker lab.
10: Oh, we already have a makerspace. We're already. We've been you're doing that for years. Hey, are you guys
1: gonna like write a little book or a pamphlet or something? Or you all know, you're waiting for one of. Well, right, what they're doing. One thing they're right? doing
4: is they're taking some of the things they've done Chattanooga to, to other cities <laughs> mm-hmm. that have gigabit, like okay. mm-hmm. City, and there's a lot of exchange going on. Right. Okay. And, sharing and we're <laughs> okay. in the process of setting up. Uh, we hope in the next year gig connections among 13 cities, so they can more easily share applications. Right. Right.
1: Right.
0: Right.
1: So, so in in many respects, I forgot who mentioned it here earlier. Mm-hmm. This idea of creating or maybe looking at the libraries of pockets of technology connected by Mm -hmm. Mm
0: gigs
1: is like the wave. It's just, you know, the library will no longer be just for the local entity. And we're going to have to wrap up here shortly, but like last thought on on that?
10: Oh, I think one of the things in our makerspace, we started out being really high tech. We've now gone low tech. We just bought a loom. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got people sewing.
0: Mm -hmm. We have
10: sewing. People, people wow. Selling, and I, I mean, I can't feel a button right so <laughs> I'm fascinated by that. Um, but the makerspace movement is really interesting, and it's. I was telling a friend about it this weekend, and he's, Oh, that's like the old commune days. Remember that there one? You there you go. Thing. Yeah, back in so, um, but no, there's it's high tech but there's low tech too. Okay. So we're gonna unfortunately
1: have to wrap. This has been an awesome day. It has been great seeing all my buddies and making new ones here yeah, in, in my Oh I'm I'm here until Thursday. I'm like right March. across the street. Get out of town. I'm on the corner. <laughs> awesome. Yes,
0: yes, yes.
1: Well there you go. Folks, I wanna thank everybody uh for listening, everyone who's been our loyal fans over these three years, guests like Bill and um uh, and Corinne for you know, just helping to make this thing called Gigabit Nation a success. And it's been like a while and I'm not gonna start to cry or anything. But it's been a while, three years and it's been a fun three years and I and I appreciate everybody who has contributed or participated in any way. So um, be here on Wednesday, we're gonna talk three D computing. I'm gonna go and, and have some good times with the rest of my Chattanooga buddies. I have a good day. I
0: mentioned it. <laughs>